1 Timothy chapter 6 is a chapter that I believe our nation has desperately needed to imbibe for some time now. And I'm looking forward to addressing it today. But let me ask you this question as you're turning to 1 Timothy chapter uh, 6. Uh, how many of you are grandparents? May I see? Okay. And, and how many of you uh, talk about your grandchildren? Okay. Let me ask you, those of you who are not grandparents, how many of you have heard grandparents talk about their grandchildren? Well, you know, that, that's just about everyone here. Uh, you, you know why that's the case. Uh, it's the case because our church has very good training opportunities for grandparents to learn how to talk about their grandchildren. Yeah, we, we, we teach them how to talk about their grandchildren, right? And they do a great job. Now, is that what has happened? No, now some of you will recognize this as an illustration that Dr. Kelly used back in early May when he was with us. Um, we, we don't have any training courses on how grandparents can talk about their grandchildren and techniques of getting into a conversation. Uh, they just dump it, whether it's appropriate or not, in the middle of the conversation. And they usually have pictures to illustrate. That, that's oftentimes what happens. Now, wh why is that? If these grandparents have not gone through any training to teach them how to talk about their grandchildren, why is it that they do it and do it often and they do it well and they do it with joy and when you're done with them, you're convinced they've got the best grandchildren on the planet. How in the world has that come about? Is it because of training? No. It's because those grandkids are on their heart. And it doesn't matter what subject you're talking about. You can be talking about auto repair. And somehow grandchildren are coming into the picture. I mean, you can talk about the price of butter beans. And grandchildren are coming into the picture. You can talk about the Atlanta Braves, miserable subject that it can be on occasion, and, and grandchildren will come into the picture because grandchildren are on their heart. You know something? The world would be a much better place and our churches would be much richer if we were the same way with Jesus, and that's how Paul was in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Here in this chapter, Paul addresses the subject of money, uh, how to acquire it, and how to view it and how to use it. And he begins with that, and then he gets off onto Jesus. And I want to show you how that happens here in this text. Uh, look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. And this is in two sections. Uh, there's the money part, how to acquire it, in verses 1 and 2. And then there is Christ uh, from um, verses 3 through 5. He says, Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke Count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and His doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they're brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. So he's talking about how to acquire money, especially how to relate to a boss. And then he gets off onto Jesus, beginning in verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords to godliness, well, he's proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come all manner of chaos, uh, such as envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings, of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. And so how you acquire money, and then Paul shifts to Jesus. Well, there's a second topic here beginning in verse 6. 
And, and that happens to be how you view money. And he goes on to say, now godliness with contentment is great gain. So contentment is how we should view uh, money and resources. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we're carrying nothing out. And then he goes on and continues with uh, contentment. And then he gets off onto Jesus, beginning in verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith, faith in Christ. Lay hold on eternal life, the life that Jesus Christ gives, to which you were also called. Christ intervened personally and called us to it. And to confess the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Some believe that was Timothy's baptism. And then, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed or told the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. You see, Christ is coming again. And so he begins with contentment, how we view money, and then he can't help but to segue into Jesus Christ. And then he says about his coming, his second coming, he will manifest it in his own time. He who, now look, put on your seatbelts and fire retardant suits, you're going to need it. He says, he who is blessed and the only potentate, the only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, who no man is see or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. I mean, you get the idea. He talks about money just as a springboard to talk about Jesus. Well, that's not all. He's talked about how to acquire money, and then he's talked about how to view money. Now he's going to talk about how to use money, beginning in verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. And compared to the rest of the world, by the way, this crowd in its totality is wealthy. Most people in the world live off of less than $2 a day. And you have on your body, including your jewelry and dental work, Uh, things that are worth more than $2 a day if you were to accumulate that in one year. So command those who are typical Americans in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in the uncertainty of riches but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. And then he gets into more doctrine about Christ, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, which describes the first six chapters of this book, the saving gospel of Christ, avoiding profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Paul here is making a point, and that is Jesus Christ is to shape everything, including what we do with money. And from this text, I want to make this one point similar to that. And that is, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life when it comes to money. So this this morning, I want to uh, address the subject, money that looks like Jesus. And I'd like to use this text to uh, address that. And the uh, uh, way that we can make money look like Jesus is found here in this text. And there's several ways to do that. First is this, Jesus' truth shapes how we acquire money. Jesus' truth shapes how we acquire money. And and that's verses 1 through 5. Now, don't stumble over the fact that here in this text we have such things as servitude and possibly slavery. It's not entirely clear. Servitude was one thing, slavery another. But don't read the 17th and 18th century 
uh, experience of American slavery back onto this. By this time in the Roman Empire, uh, slavery had become uh, ruled and governed in a much more benevolent way than previous centuries. Uh, it still is wrong to force someone uh, into uh, captivity and slavery against their own will. That's not right at all. But many of the slaves in that day, which numbered probably 50 million in the Roman Empire, uh, were oftentimes prisoners of war. And uh, many of them uh, would actually voluntarily place themselves in servitude to pay off their debts. The 50% of all slaves in the Roman Empire were free by the time they were 30. They could purchase themselves out of it, or a family member could. And uh, oftentimes, uh, they would complete... Well, very few people ever died uh, under that uh, yoke of slavery. And so the 19th century and the 18th century... Uh, experience of American slavery was far more harsh and ugly and difficult and evil and wrong than this particular experience here in this uh, text. And so that's why Paul doesn't come out guns blazing against that era of uh, slavery, because uh, to do so would jeopardize the lives of all of those that are there. Now, you can sit back and criticize the Bible all you want, but you have to understand you're doing that from the comfortable position of a Western American democracy. You're not in these people's shoes. And to do so would have really put people at risk for their lives. Now, what did not happen with bullets and bombs and weapons and war ended up happening with the gospel of Christ because the way Paul approached this, it ended up undermining slavery so that within a couple of centuries, it was completely eradicated from the Roman Empire. And with verses like this in Ephesians chapter 6, it would not be hard to understand why. Because he said... We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that undermines the foundations of it. So we've got to be very, very careful of being harsh and critical of the biblical uh, approach to this. It worked better, in fact, than any other approach in undermining it. Now, the key here in verses 1 and 2 happens to be honor and benefit. We are to honor those we work for, and we do so when they're believers to their benefit. Now, Kit Hughes says, one time that he was working for um, a boss, an employer, who was very skeptical of Christianity because of some of the Christian employees that he had. He found that many of the Christian employees would stand around not working but talking about God on his dime. And they wouldn't work. All the others would, but they wouldn't. And he found one employee disappeared one day for about 20 minutes in the bathroom. And he came out bragging that he had read three chapters of the Gospel of John while there. May I say to you, I hope that you'll read your Bible. I hope you talk about God, but you never neglect your work to do so. We don't do that. When we are at work, we are in constant motion. We're constantly working. We show up a little earlier than everyone else. We leave a little later than everyone else, and we end up being and model the best employee-employer relationship of all. And that's the point here in verses 1 through 5. In fact, Jesus would urge and communicate this. Uh, and Paul would say, hey, it's the words and the truth of Jesus Christ that shapes how we approach this. Uh, and so uh, Jesus, for example, in Mark chapter 8, verse 35 said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses or forfeits his own soul? He would say in Matthew 5, 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. 
Uh, Matthew 6.33 is another financial verse. Seek first the kingdom of God. Instead of worrying and having anxiety uh, over your possessions and your financial status, um, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, that's what the text says. Now, here's a really uh, strong evaluation here of those who would disagree with Christ's approach to money. Look at verses 3 through 5. He says at the end of verse 2, teach and exhort these things. But verse 3, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the doctrine which accords to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil, suspicious, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a mean, uh, means of great gain from such withdraw yourself. In other words, there's not a positive thing to say about opposition to anything that Jesus taught. And so there's a very harsh indictment over disagreeing with Jesus on his words, any words, but especially these words about finances. So the question comes to us is, with the way that I work, is there anyone who wants to follow Jesus because they've seen my work ethic? Is there anyone closer to giving themselves to Jesus Christ because how I conduct myself at the job? Do people respect me more and are they willing to listen to the gospel more because I have been there. Ladies and gentlemen, we spend more time probably with our co-workers during our work years than we even do with our family. I, I wish it weren't that way, but, but it is. That's the life of work. And what a tremendous mission field that happens to be before us. And the truth of Jesus has got to shape every bit of that. But that, that's one thing. That's how to make money look like Jesus. But there's a second thing here in the text as well. And that is about Jesus' life, His uh, truth, and now His life. His life shapes how we view money. And, and the key uh, word here in this text happens to be contentment. We're to be content and satisfied with what God has given us and what He has called us to do in our vocational life. We're to be content in our earthly living. That's verses 6 through 10. He says, for we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. I don't care how many hearses you, or excuse me, U-Haul trailers you line up before a hearse. None of it is making it to the other side. None. Uh, that led one fellow in his will to say, uh, being of sound mind and sound judgment, I say to my family, I spin it all. Well, maybe we don't want to do that, but truth is, we're carrying nothing with us. And he knew that. And so he goes on to say, And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who are not content, those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation and a snare, into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Lust not merely sexual, but also material. Overwhelming desire that shapes our plans, our lives, our goal, our behavior, these are foolish and harmful lusts which can drown us in financial destruction and even some into eternal perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And, and because of that, some have strayed from the faith, have turned from Christ in greediness and pierced themselves through with many a sorrow. 
Uh, so he says in verse 11, You, man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. And so we're to have contentment in our earthly life. Then we're to have contentment in eternal life. He says in verse 12, Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. Oh, I hope that every person can come to understand what the Scripture teaches about eternal life. Eternal life is a gift of God where God cleans us up, gives us His righteousness, and moves upon us in such a way that we can begin to enjoy His quality of life. So it not only deals about how long life is, it deals with also the quality of that life as well. So eternal life includes both. It is a long life in Christ with all the promise of heaven, but it's also a quality of life that does not begin for the Christian upon death. It begins for the Christian upon conversion. And all that eternal life happens to be comes streaming into the present experience. And Paul says, lay hold of that, and that's going to give you marvelous contentment. I will say that the empty hole that we oftentimes have in our heart is not in the shape of a dollar sign. It's in the shape of Christ in His eternal life. And it is only that that is going to fit into that empty hole. And until that happens, there is no satisfaction, none whatsoever. Uh, you cannot be filled and satisfied with anything material, earthly, that you can touch. We can only be satisfied by the eternal life that Jesus Christ gives. And, and it's no wonder, because look at how he describes Christ in verse 13 to 16. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Keep this commandment without spot. Blameless until the appearing of Jesus Christ. Christ is coming back. He is going to return, and Jesus is going to magnify, and Jesus is going to expand in His second coming all that He did in His first. Beloved, I've got good news for you. Eden is coming back. He's going to bring it, but it's going to be more majestic and more expansive, more populated, more permanent, more stable than it was the first time. It's going to be great. And so what Jesus did in the Garden of Eden, and, and then what Jesus displayed in the Gospels, it's coming back, and He's going to bring it. And a kind of life where disease was eliminated, and demons shrieked and fled, and were intimidated in, a, in His hot presence, and, and all that caused sorrow broke down in front of Him, and dared not lift its hand against those whom he had touched, and that day is coming, and it will never, ever leave. This is the one that gives that kind of quality and quantity of life. Who can't be content in that? So Jesus' life shapes how we view money, and Jesus invites us to it. Now, let's just imagine for a moment that Prince William of the United Kingdom were to invite you to spend a month with him. And he promised, anywhere I go, you can go. You can go to every castle, every trip, every state dinner, every meeting with every dignitary, and all of the accoutrements that come with uh, me being the prince are yours. Well, I've got news for you. One greater than Prince William is present in here and inviting you to participate in every bit of this. 
That makes that invitation greater, and that makes that invitation even more urgent. And that's why every person that doubts that he has Christ in his heart or life needs to turn to him today and say yes to him and come to him. We need to be content then with him. Now, why is it then that eternal life is available and Christ is available, but I'm still lacking in contentment? Well, why is it? Well, I would encourage you to... uh, Think of a couple things. One, are you fomenting a lack of contentment? Are you fomenting discontent? I mean, if you've got eternal life available to you, and Christ and all of His mercy and love is available to you, and you're still discontent, I dare say there might be a very good chance that you're fomenting and inspiring your own discontent. If you spend too much time looking at catalogs online or in print, that could be one. I mean, I discovered back a while ago, uh, a number of years ago, I was really purchasing too many books. That's my weakness. I mean, some people it's shoes, some people it's, for me it's books. And I had to quit looking at catalogs of books and just set it aside and not do that. Automatically transferred the money I would spend on that into savings so I would never see it. I've got to come up with those kinds of things. I was fomenting my own lack of desire. And the last thing I need is another book. I just don't need it anymore. Um, is it possible, if you're discontented, that you're fomenting and inspiring and creating your own lack of contentment? But the second thing is, let's ask this. Let's imagine that you were content in Christ and you were not discontented about money and material things. What would you do? How would you act? How would you behave if you were contented then? Well, go do it. Go do it. I think one of the worst myths that have been perpetrated upon the human race, especially the American people, is the idea that to do something successful and effective, you have to be motivated to do it. Motivation is way overrated. It really is. Successful and effective people do not wait on motivation to do the right thing. Successful and effective people do the right thing whether they're motivated or not. You see, if it's right, if it's wise, it's the best course of action, it doesn't matter how you feel, you simply do it. Harry Stack Sullivan said, It is easier to act your way into a new way of feeling than to feel your way into a new way of acting. Now, I'm for all the motivation that you can get, but frankly, motivation usually comes after the victory and not before. And so many people are waiting to do the right thing in their marriage or with their money or with their in-laws or waiting to do the right thing here, there, and yon with the different decisions in life and different challenges in life until they get motivated. I hope you can be motivated. I'm not against it. But ladies and gentlemen, a lack of motivation is never, is never uh, an excuse for failing to do the right thing. We simply do the right thing whether we feel like it or not. And oftentimes, the internal joy and excitement from doing it follows. It doesn't proceed. And that's much the whole idea that is found uh, in, in this text. Uh, Jesus' life then uh, shapes how we view money. We end up acting 
upon that. Well, th that's not all. Jesus is not only the uh, truth, and Jesus is not only the life that shapes our uh, money, but Jesus is also the way. He is also the way. In uh, his study of Ivy League universities, uh, Dr. Patterson has concluded that all of the Ivy League universities shifted to a more liberal, anti-supernatural, anti-Christian position from which they have not returned under the leadership of conservative Christian presidents. Every one of those institutions had a Bible-believing president who embraced the supernatural, which is the huge issue in academia, and it was under that particular president that they shifted to an anti-supernatural view, which has led to their embrace uh, of uh, so much of liberalism and rejection of the Christian faith. By the way, there, there is no Christian faith without the supernatural. Did you know that? Uh, you, you've got to embrace the supernatural to be Christian. I mean, what do you do with the resurrection of Christ? That was not natural. That was supernatural. God intervened and raised His Son from the dead, and you've got to trust that in order to become a Christian. Uh, and the supernatural is so important to God that the Bible begins with the supernatural. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It ends with the supernatural. Christ will split the eastern sky, and He will return and establish His kingdom. And so the Bible is chock full of that. The Christian faith is defined by the ability to accept the supernatural. Well, why is it that otherwise wonderful presidents who believe the Scripture, who embrace the supernatural, who embrace the Christian faith, would shift. The vast majority of them have done so because they thought that that shift would help them raise money for their institutions. They thought that that's where the money happened to be. And in some cases they were right, in some cases they were entirely wrong. Frankly, there's money in both camps. But then they did not know. And so today, many of those, uh, not, not in their totality, but many of those are more marked by an anti-supernatural view than they happen to be by a supernatural view that is modeled in Jesus Christ. Well, this is much of what we find in verse 17. Well, look, look back at verse 10. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil from which some have strayed from the faith. And, and then he continues about the use of money in verse 17. He said, command those who are rich in this present age first in their attitude. They need to serve the Lord in their ways with money, with their attitude. Um, not to be haughty and not to trust in the uncertainty of riches, but in the living God. That is a persistent temptation. And not until we go see Jesus will we ever be free from that temptation. And, and then, not only in our attitude, but our action. We're to serve our ways are to be marked by service uh, in our action when it comes to money. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, willing to give, willing to share. And, and then we are to uh, serve not only in attitude and action, but anticipation. Verse 19, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. In other words, how we spend and how we serve in this life lays a foundation for what we will experience in the next life. Now, we are saved entirely by the grace of God. None of our works contribute to that. All we contribute to our salvation is our sin. God does the grace and the saving. So we're saved by grace, but we are rewarded in the next life by faithfulness. And when we spend right and serve right, 
then we build a great foundation for the time to come. And then we do it also by our attention and attentiveness. Oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Guard like a, uh, guard like a member of the Roman military this deposit that God committed to your trust is the image here in verse number 20. So Jesus' way shapes how we use our money, how we end up using it. In other words, we guard, we guard our ability to serve others financially. And that's really the heart and soul of what we're talking about here in verse number 18. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. So we're guarding two things here. Number one, we are guarding our ability to bless others financially. And then we're guarding that foundation that we're building in life because quite frankly, there are many things that would undermine both. Hey, let me ask you a question. Wouldn't you love to have the ability to step into the parking lot today or the parking lot at your work tomorrow and see the minivan of a family that has got bald tires on it. And wouldn't you like to just put a note under the windshield directing them to the local tire place that you favor and there anonymously leave enough money for them to replace all their tires? Aren't you tired of seeing such things and worrying about your bank balance to where you can't do anything? Wouldn't you love to be able just to write a check on the spot and take care of the need? Because so many of God's people spend in a worldly way and don't ever consider God's will or service to other people, they don't have anything. When I'm not making this up. Look at verse 18. You look at me like I have a snake on my head. Look at verse 18. Let them, I don't have anything on my head, okay? Let's just make that clear. <laughs> verse 18. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. And because we're busted and because we're tight, we're unable to help unable to serve. What the text is tailored to teach us is this. We're to be so guarded about financial service and so guarded about that reward in the next life that we do guard these things and we guard our ability to serve others financially. So we serve. And as a result, we end up receiving. Now, let, let me say, there, there are some folks that have what I call a depletion mentality, and it's not original with me, but a depletion mentality about giving and serving in these ways. That they think, after I have given, I've got less to spend. Then there are some who have an abundance mentality or an investment mentality to giving and serving and helping others financially. And that is, after I give or after I help someone, I actually have more. Okay, all right. Back to verse 18 and verse 19. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. Now look at the abundance in verse number 19. Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. What happens is God takes note of what you give. And he expands your foundation, your blessing, and your reward on the other side. What you're doing in this life then becomes an investment. 
you're not depleted, you're invested. You don't have less, you've got more. You see, whenever you handle these things in God's way. So Jesus' way becomes the way that shapes our use of money. What a remarkable thing. Now let's make it very clear here. God wants Jesus to rule all things, including this issue. Everything. That's one thing that many people misunderstand, even religious people. They think if they read the Bible occasionally, come to church, live a moral life, everything's good. What they misunderstand is that God wants Jesus to reign and rule over every area of reality with nothing outside his lordship and purview. That's the first thing. Jesus is to rule all things. God wants Jesus to rule all things. But the second thing is, God wants Jesus to shape all things, including this issue. There was one sculptor that had a block of marble, and someone asked him, what do you uh, propose to do with this block of marble? He said, I'm going to sculpt an angel out of it. And it was an odd-shaped bit of marble, and the questioner asked, well, how in the world are you going to shape an angel out of this? He said, well, I'm going to envision the angel and then knock off everything from that marble that doesn't look like an angel. Well, I think that's probably pretty good. That's, that's something I can understand about sculpting. It is God's intention to make us look like Jesus. He's got a vision for every life. And so at the moment of conversion, he begins that work in us, and he looks at us, and anything that doesn't look like Jesus, he knocks off. He does. Initially at conversion, sometimes he knocks off some pretty big things. But as time goes on, after the big things are taken care of, he gets really detailed. He gets very detailed. He gets very precise. And you have to know, he loves his son Jesus to leave us like we are. And he's in the process of knocking off anything that doesn't look like Jesus. And every day we must surrender to that work. So I've got to say to you, if today you open up your heart and life to Christ, you need to know up front that's what he's going to do. I'm about to make the worst sales pitch in the world, but I'm not a salesman. I don't want you to be misled. If you open up your heart and life to Christ today and you embrace Jesus and say yes to Him, He's going to begin that process and He isn't going to stop it. He will persecute you into anxiety. He'll get on it and He will stay with it. And a lot of times it's uncomfortable. He wants to shape you to look like Jesus because the more that happens, the better His Son looks. And He is intensely committed to the glory of His Son whether anyone else is or not. So that, that's what he invites you to. you got to know, with the forgiveness of sins, with God the Father's embrace, the gift of eternal life, comes this lifelong mission. And I've got to tell you, I'm more than 35 years the other side of that, and I wouldn't have it any other way. I really wouldn't. Because the more I'm like Jesus, the less I'm like myself. And I like Jesus a whole lot more. How about you? That's what he's inviting you to today. Would you come and give your life to Christ and say yes to Him? Maybe part of being like Christ is that you're part of a church. As corrupt as the synagogue was, Jesus was in it all the time. 
Paul as well. And that's what he wants for you. You can become part of Beach Haven. Maybe God's calling you to ministry or missionary service. You, you come too. But let's stand together real quickly and let's pray. And let's ask God to help us to do serious business with him in our invitation time.